0: So it's going to be a different type of sermon today. It's, I'm glad the, the worship was great because this sermon is going to be dry. Okay? <laughs> it's going to be uh, more like a, a lecture, I feel like, than anything else. So from about 14 years old till I was 17, I spent quite a lot of time trying to, trying to study other religions in the world, study atheism, trying to figure out where I was. Now, I grew up in church and I was kind of working from the assumption that this Christianity thing was unreliable and not real. And so that was my assumption. Church was a place where you pretended, like, pretended to be perfect, like everything was okay. Um, and then I was 10 years old and something happened in my life. My grandmother was murdered. She was stabbed to death in her apartment by a junkie trying to, trying to get his next fix and he was gonna rob her. She didn't let him and she was stabbed to death. Um, And that sort of sparked in me an interest in death and realizing, like, why am I here? What is the purpose of life, if there is any purpose at all? Which, by one point, had led me to quite a despair, uh, thoughts about suicide, and one very stupid attempt of suicide when I was 17. Now, during my look into atheism, I noticed a consistent theme, that 90% of the attacks that they gave... ...towards religion, was directed towards one religion. Now, it wasn't deism as a whole. It wasn't just every religion. It wasn't monotheism. It wasn't polytheism. It wasn't Buddhism, or Hinduism, or Baha'ism, or Islam. It was Christianity that was constantly under attack. Almost 90% of the books that i read... ...were all directed towards slamming Christianity. Now, you look throughout history... ...and you realize the times that you're living in now, now... ...like a lot of Christians, you hear them say... These are tough times. We've never been attacked so much. And I'm like, read the Romans. Okay, read about the Roman periods when Christians were being burned on the stake and killed for having Bibles. Like, we've, been, we've had it worse. Let me, let me just put it to you that way. Uh, you look throughout history, and Christianity has—there's never been a time where it's not been under attack. Now, the attacks may have been different from each other. There's ideological attacks, there's theoretical attacks— and then, like, the Roman period, or even today, Christians in China, uh, who are being... Their churches are, turned, uh, are torn down. Some of them have been killed for their faith. Uh, you look at the Christians in uh, Syria and what used to be ISIS territories. They're, what the religious group that's killed the most in modern-day society is Christians. It's not just something that happened back then. Actually, one guy did a study on this and he was trying to figure out how many Christians had been killed over um, over the last 2,000 years and I don't know how people do this it seems ridiculous to me like is there paperwork for every Christian murdered out there uh, but he, he came to the conclusion somehow that there have been a hundred million Christians killed in 2,000 years I don't know how he got to that conclusion but in his opinion the worst uh, 90% of them I think he said were killed in the 20th century alone so this is not just something that happened like back then this is still happening today even well just this week we had a missionary trying to get to an isolated tribe where was it in india yeah and he got killed with arrows and and so this is still happening today you look throughout history and christianity has been under attack but here we are today 2018 and we're still talking about jesus christ This guy who had no political power, no military power, died as a criminal on a cross. And here we are, we name our dogs Caesar, right? And we name our sons, you know, we name them Luke or Matthew. We name them after the disciples of Christ. And our animals, we name them after the big political power figures back in the day. Now, I used to be a pretty angry kid, Uh, I know I'm a fluffy teddy bear now, but I used to be a a really angry kid. I used to get into quite a few fights, and I remember this one specific period where I was about to attack someone, and he defended his face with his elbows. And I punched him in the elbows, and it broke uh, this part of my hand, which would not heal correctly and break over and over again. Now, here's why I say this. That's the picture I get when when I see the history ...and the attacks on the Bible. There's like a lot of broken knuckles... Uh, ...but the Bible is still standing there, and here we are talking about Jesus Christ... ...in every country. It's not just us. We have a family all over the world. Like we're mm-hmm. praying for Bobby and Brittany in Fredericksburg, Virginia. So a lot of bloody knuckles throughout history, but the Bible stands strong. Now the attack, they differ from book to book. Um, but we are, we've been dwelling on the book of Daniel. If you don't know uh, Daniel, he's the guy who went to the lion's den. Maybe a few stories that you heard when you were a kid. Sadrach, Misek, and Abednego. Abednego? Yeah, thank you. I never know how to say that in English. Abednego. uh, They were thrown into the fiery furnace. Like These are stories we heard as kids. And so uh, we're reading this book. And we're getting into the portion of the book where there's a lot of prophecy. Now, this book is vehemently attacked. Because... The prophecies are very uh, nuanced. They're very descriptive of specific things. Talking about what will come after this and talking about Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes. How do I say that in English? Antiochus Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes who killed the Jews uh, during the Maccabean period and so on and so forth. So this book is very much under attack. And I wanted to take one sermon. It's going to be very different to deal with the attacks that we see on the book of Daniel to, to ask ourselves, can we be, rely on this book to be historically accurate and reliable uh, for us to read? Now, I want to read to you 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. This is a verse for all Christians to have. This is not just for the professional Christians. This is like for the all of Christians. So Peter says here, But in, in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord, the Lord is holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now notice, he's telling all Christians to be ready to defend the hope that is within them, to answer questions. For some reason, some churches have made it so that people feel uncomfortable asking questions about faith. This shouldn't be true of us. We should be open to questions, not pretending like we know all the answers, but being willing to say, you know what, let me check on that, and let's talk again next week. Be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us. And uh, notice that it doesn't just say what to do, but how to do it. Do it with gentleness and respect, these are the words that are uh, very often forgotten about. For many people, they like to win an argument and not try to win over the person. Uh, they, they're not really concerned with glorifying God in the way they talk with other people. They're just, they just want to be right, right. Now, one of the most attacked books of the Bible is Daniel. Because of the, the nuanced prophecies that happen. And I understand why. Because it gives a detailed prophecy about future kingdoms. It gives detailed prophecy in chapter 9 about specifically the year when Christ is supposed to come. And some say even to a day. And we're about to go into that prophecy probably after Christmas. Um, So it describes world events in details. Uh, What was then prophecy, we can look back and we can see it as history in our opinion. Like we can study history and we can line them up with what Daniel said would happen. Uh, which has made the, the critics towards this book very different from others. Most critics, they will, they will tell you that, yes, Daniel is talking about the Medes and the Persians. He is talking about Alexander the Great. He is talking about Antiochus Epiphanus. Uh, okay. Uh, he is talking about all these things, but the attack is different in the, the way that they will say, but hey, it was written after the fact. It wasn't really written by a guy named Daniel who lived during Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius, 530 A.D. uh, B.C., sorry. But rather, it was written during the Maccabean period, after this had all happened. That's how he's writing history, pretending like it's prophecy. But in doing that, they've placed a very large bet. They have already confessed that this is so detailed that they know he's talking about Alexander the Great. And no, he's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. I mean, I'm just going to pretend like I, I know what I'm saying. I'm going to say it with confidence, and you don't shake your head at me, okay? You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, and they've, they've basically told us this is very accurate, accurate of what has happened. And so they've kind of placed their bet, a huge bet, on this being written later. So I want to take the c- claims of their critics to the book of Daniel, and I want to make a case so that you can be confident in the historicity and the reliability of the scriptures, to be able to answer objections that you may get from this. Now here's an example, and I'm not using Wikipedia as an authoritative source, but if you post anything online, like if you'd post a video on the accuracy of Daniel, and someone would Google the book of Daniel on the Bible, they would probably see this pop up on Wikipedia. Okay, So this is sort of a popular objection. It kind of summarizes what a lot of people say about the book of Daniel. It says, Daniel was composed in the times of the Maccabees, 2nd century BCE. The author seems to have taken the name of the book's hero from legendary Daniel, mentioned in Ezekiel, for his wisdom and righteousness. Now basically, all of the attacks on the book of Daniel can be summarized in this, that it was written late in history, after the fact. He's not in 530 BCE, writing about prophecy that will happen. He's in 165 BC writing about what has happened. Um, it's not prophecy, it's history, in other words. Now, the book of Daniel says over and over again that it was written around 530 BC. If you These are all the chapters. It's about eight different places in the book of Daniel. He mentions on the third year of this king, or on the first year of this king, that's how they knew history. It wasn't, well, on, on the 530th year before Christ, uh, I, you know, they, they saw kings and they marked down where they were in history by what year they ruled those kings. Was it their third year, or, and so on and so forth. Now, <clears throat> it was always assumed that this was written in this period when Daniel says he's writing this stuff, uh, up until recently. Now, the Jewish historian, uh, Flavius Josephus, he was born in 37 AD. He's born, what is it, three, four years after Christ is crucified and ascended into heaven. Uh, and he writes about the book of Daniel and Alexander the Great reading it. He writes this, this is Flavius jo- Josephus. And I've got pictures for you, so it's going to be a great great thing. So, uh, by popular <coughs> demand. Um uh, Thank you. Thank you, Hilted, for asking for the pictures. You're welcome. He, Alexander the Great, gave his hand to the high priest, and with the Jews running beside him, entered the city. Then he went up to the temple where he sacrificed to God under the direction of the high priest, and showed due honor to the priests and to the high priest himself. And when the book of Daniel was shown to him, in which he had declared that one of the Greeks would destroy the empire of the Persians, he believed himself to be the one indicated, and in his joy, the following day, he summoned them at, in his joy, dismissed the multitude for the time being, but on the following day, he summoned them again and told them to ask for any gifts which they might desire. I don't know what the sources Josephus is using, uh, but he has been proven to be a very reliable historian during that period. Um, some of the things have been changed in his writings and so on and so forth, but they're mostly known. Now this is very much in, in line with what Alexander the Great did. He went into cities, he conquered cities, he offered them to surrender to himself, or he conquered them militarily, and to solidify his rule, he would sacrifice to the gods of that city. And this is talking about when he came and he came into Jerusalem and he conquered Jerusalem. So he went he asked the high priest to lead him in a sacrifice in the temple of God of the Bible. Uh, Like in the destruction of Tyre, for instance, he goes to the city, he says, surrender to me. It sounds like they're willing to surrender, but until Alexander says, well, you have to let me sacrifice to your gods. I think they cut the throat of the messengers, they throw them off the city walls, and he destroys that city with fury like no one's seen before. So this is in line with the character of Alexander the Great. This is what he did. He went into the cities and partook, uh, partook in the sacrificial system of their god or gods. No, this idea that the, the book of Daniel was written later was first introduced by this guy, Porphyry. And the reason I'm doing pictures is because there's a lot of names that we don't use before, so if you're a visually-minded person, then you may think of the pictures. So this, this guy, Porphyry, he's a, he was a pagan philosopher. You see? See how pagan he is? He's very sad about it. Uh, he's a pagan philosopher. No, I'm just kidding. He's a pagan philosopher around 233 to 305 AD, He basically read the book of Daniel, and he told them, no, this is too good to be true, this detailed prophecy. This is not happening because prophecy doesn't exist. This was the first attack in the book of Daniel around this period. His case was very minimal. He didn't offer very solid objections. He just said, no, this is too good to be true. It must have been written after the fact. But I want to go into the people that have kind of developed this and now have a more strategic approach to basically what Porphyry had said. We're going to dwell on seven different points where people object to the book of Daniel. It's going to be prophecy is impossible, like Porphyry said. Bad history, linguistic arguments, multiple authors, theology is too advanced. It's in the wrong section of the Bible, and then there's miscellaneous. Um, so uh, that's just a, you know, y- you've gone to the Namme at Harcup, at, right? Yeah. I'm just kidding. Now, let's just go. Let's, let's move through this list. Now, number one is, is uh, prophecy is impossible, which is just a strange argument. It's a, it's a circular argument, if you think. It's a, it's a fallacy. It starts with saying prophecy is impossible, and then you could be the person who comes to them and shows them prophecy, and they'd be like, well, it's written after the fact, and you'd be like, why? Well, because prophecy is impossible. <laughs> it's it's very bad fallacy to make. It's kind of like, you know, like saying, hey, there's no cure to cancer. And then here in what, 14 days, my son is gonna be done with his cancer therapy and we're gonna do blood tests and show that he doesn't have cancer anymore. And you can show him here, here's the results. There's a cure for cancer. And he's like, he must have not had cancer to begin with. And you're like, why? Well, because there's no cure for cancer. <laughs> and no, that's, not, that's a bad logic. That's not how you use logic. Um, to answer this objection, you need to help them realize the, the flaw in their thinking. Um, this, is not, this is really nothing but blind faith, if you think about it. A lot of people will tell Christians, you guys have blind faith, which I don't think the Bible teaches us to do. It doesn't teach us to have blind faith. Um, but we're accused of that a lot. But blind faith is not just where people worship God. It's everywhere around us. We make presuppositions and we try to figure out stuff that supports our view. I'm biased, you're biased, everyone is biased to a certain degree or another. The question is, am I biased towards the right thing? That's the question we should be asking. Um, so don't waste too much time dealing with this. Like, if he doesn't see or see doesn't see the flaw in that thinking, that the assumption of prophecy isn't real or doesn't happen, It's going to somehow prove the point. If they don't see how ridiculous that is, you really, there's difficult, you know, you're going to have a difficult time trying to argue with a person like that. And I'd say love them, pray for them, and be a good friend. Uh, That's really what what we can do. Now the second one is bad history. And I find this so interesting because, uh, well, I was talking to one guy from the Atheist Association here in Iceland, and he started with the idea, we were talking about the Gospels of Jesus. And his idea was that Jesus didn't exist, that there were three, four guys who came together. They were all going to write a story about this fictional character, Jesus, and they were going to make their stories line up with each other. And so they spent a great deal of time trying to corroborate their stories. Uh, and then we have the four gospels that we have today. That was, that was his idea of what happened uh, in the, with the New Testament, with the stories of Jesus. Now, but then we moved further into our conversation, and he started uh, attacking the Gospels because they didn't line up with each other. He started using that logic, and I'm like, which one is it? It's like, which one are you going to stick with here? Right? Did they corroborate their stories and work together to form a story, a cohesive story, or they don't line up with each other? You can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like, you have to pick one or the other. And the same idea is here. What, what do we just say, like the major... Uh, major objection to Daniel is That it was written after the fact According to history And then one of the objections is It's got bad history <laughs> it's, it's very interesting I don't know how it works um, So let's jump into this uh, First we got Belshazzar That's Belshazzar Polaroid from his time uh, Now Daniel 5 he t- <laughs> Hildur are you afraid to look up When I, when I s- Okay. God bless you uh, so Daniel five says that Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon when the Med, Med, uh, Med and Medo Persia yeah when Medo Persia took over he was Nebuchadnezzar's son okay and the critics will say Belshazzar never existed it's a fictional character that the author of Daniel made up he's nowhere in the records records of the history of the kings in Babylon. And here's a common mistake that a lot of people do when they talk about Bible. Arguments from silence. Right. It's like uh, people throughout history have claimed that you only saw this person or this thing or this place in the Bible and nowhere else. Therefore, it was made up and didn't really exist. That's another kind of logical fallacy. It's like us, you know, walking outside and all of a sudden a note flies in our face. And it's a letter from 200 years ago and it talks about bob the milkman or you know someone and we're like whoa, oh, who's Bob the milkman what was it like living 200 years ago and they are like well this is the only place we find him. we i've never read about bob the milkman except for this letter therefore he mustn't exist because we we don't have a family home where it says bob the milkman lived here or bob the milkman was here uh, so therefore this must be fake and he didn't really exist well we know like it's not true <laughs> just because we don't have stuff that show that he was somewhere or lived somewhere doesn't mean he didn't exist it just means that we haven't found anything that corroborates this letter yet but that's what happens a lot when it comes to the bible right? like like right here Belshazzar. we only read about him in the book of daniel therefore he didn't exist but with this point they actually have a uh, greater reason for their argument than just from silence it's built on certain things, like uh, Herodotus, who is the father of history. And he uh, apparently was dropping his rope a little bit. He needs to cover up. Uh, but Herodotus is a writer of history. He talks about the Babylonians. He writes their kings down. It's an extensive list of the different kings in Babylon. Um, this, and he writes about 100 years after Daniel is writing the book of Daniel. Not only is Belshazzar not mentioned in his list of kings, uh, but also, Nebuchadnezzar is cited as the last king of Babylon. So there are a few lists out there, not just Herodotus. It's other people that have come, and they've said, uh, well, these are the kings of Babylon. None of them mention Belshazzar. And all of them are, agree in the fact that uh, Nebonidus was the last king of Babylon when the Medes and the Persians came, and they took over. And for many years, this attacked, attack on the Bible was a popular one on the historicity and the reliability of the book of Daniel. But then archaeology, they kept digging and doing their thing. And in 1853, they found this, the Nebuchadnezzar Cylinder. Uh, just looks alien to me. I'm sure Ancient Aliens has done an episode on this. Uh, this is a transportation device somehow. Um, this is made right before the fall of Babylon. So before the fall of Babylon, they're writing this. It's not afterwards. It's not written as history. It's a contemporary report. And on this cylinder, it reads, this is what it says. As for me, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, save me from sinning against your great Godhead and grant me as a present a lifelong of days. And as for Belshazzar, note the eldest son, my offspring, instill reverence for your great Godhead in his heart, and may he not commit, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so he keeps walking. But he, he mentioned this guy that no one had heard of before, except for in the book of Daniel, Belshazzar. Uh, so number one, there was a guy named Belshazzar. Number two, he was a part of the royal family. So all of a sudden, the book that's been criticized for bad history shows itself to have better history than the father of history, Herodotus. And Kind of, you know, awkward, awkward moment for many people. Then in another place on the cylinder, it says this. When the third year was about to begin, Nebuchadnezzar entrusted the army to his oldest son, Belshazzar. Or it doesn't say Belshazzar in there, but we just read about who his oldest son was. So it's Belshazzar. His firstborn, the troops in the country, he ordered under his command. He let everything go and trusted the kingship to him and himself. He started out for a long journey that with the military forces of Akkad marching with him, he turned to Teammah deep in the west. He started out expanding on a path leading to a distant region. So who was the firstborn? It was Belshazzar, the the guy that really didn't pop up anywhere except for the book of Daniel. And this lines up perfectly with what we read in Daniel. uh, We've done this text before. This is chapter 5, verse 7, the latter half of that verse. And he comes and he says, hey, whoever interprets the writing on this wall, he gives a promise. Whoever reads the writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And you ask yourself, why the third ruler in the kingdom? Why not the second ruler in the kingdom? Well, it's because Belshazzar is the second ruler in the kingdom. He is still under his father in Eponidas. And then Daniel comes along and he's the third ruler in the kingdom. Uh, so Daniel has more reliable history than Herodotus when it comes to Babylon. Uh, but the critics, they will come back and say, well, in the Bible, he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar, and in history, he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar. How do you reconcile that? Well, here's the family tree. I, I had fun doing this. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and uh, he, he finds a woman. When a man... He, he finds a woman uh, called uh, Queen Nitocris. Uh, that's Queen Nitocris right there. Uh, there's no picture online. Who's either, he's, he's either the former wife of Nebuchadnezzar or his daughter. So he's either the former wife or his daughter. I lean towards her being the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. This uh, solidifies Neb- uh, Nebunidus as a king in Babylon because he's now married to the princess, basically. Their firstborn is born, and it's Belshazzar, right there. He's looking weirdly at his mom. Uh, Which makes Nebuchadnezzar his grandfather. Now, I think most of you, uh, I think it's most likely that Natogris was his daughter, the daughter of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you know about Bible history and about how the word father is used, you know that it's not uncommon to call your ancestor your father. Like you see the Pharisees in the Bible. What do they say to Jesus? We are the sons of, you know, Moses. Uh, We're sons of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You know, they're not really their sons. They're they're offspring. They are their ancestors. So in biblical languages, saying that I, you know, I could say I'm the son of uh, Thorstein, my great-grandfather, and... uh, and that would be okay in biblical times. That's how they talked about being a son of someone, it's being an offspring of someone. Now, their firstborn is Belsasar, which makes Nebuchadnezzar his grandpa, as I think it's most likely that Natophras uh, was his daughter. Now, if you, and uh, yeah, so I think, I think Nebuchadnezzar was one of the greatest kings in Babylon, one of the most known kings in Babylon. So if you're Nebu- uh, Belsasar and you want to get power, you want to make sure you stay in power. I think it's a great idea to connect yourself to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar the great king of Babylon, who built Babylon. Um, now next, we move into Darius the Mede. Didn't have a picture of him either. His, now critics will say, this guy, he didn't exist. And you see this theme throughout. It's like, this guy didn't exist, this guy didn't exist, and, and until something comes up that proves his existence, they're going to they're gonna believe that. Now they'll say that there was no king called Darius the Mede in Babylon. Uh, It was Cyrus who came and he conquered Babylon. Cyrus the Great. Now how are you going to say this Darius the Mede guy was the guy who conquered Babylon when it's obvious in history that Cyrus the Great was the one who who conquered Babylon. And these are my first points. What we need to have in mind when we read about uh, Darius the Mede is, number one, his kingship was given. Now you read uh, Daniel 5, Thirty-one and, and chapter 9, 1. And you see the passive language that's used to describe how Darius the Mede became king of Babylon. It's not he came and conquered, he ta- came and took it. It's, it's uh, sentences like he received the kingdom, or he was made king. It's passive. He, didn't, he wasn't the guy who came and conquered Babylon. He was given the kingdom. And then there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that his... His authority is extensive beyond Babylon. It only talks about him being the king of the Babylonians. It doesn't talk about the rest of the world. In the Bible, he's only the king of the Babylonians. He was co-regent under Cyrus the Great. Daniel 6 28, it says this, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the person. Now, some think that they're the same guy, which I think is kind of taking it too far but it's an interesting theory I lean towards them being two separate guys and lastly there's this point Darius may not have been anyone's name but a title if you look up the, the, the word Darius which is a Persian word and what it means it means he possesses or rich and kingly it doesn't necessarily have to be that he was a that was his name uh, so this may not have been his name but a position kind of like Caesar alright or Kaiser, or, you know, whatever, or Herod. Herod was a name in, in the beginning, but then it came sort of to describe a, a position later on. Uh, or Mr. President, or Mr. Prime Minister, or, you know, whatever, Mrs. President, Mrs. Prime Minister. Not to offend anyone here. Now, here's the debate. When it comes to who is this guy, Darius the Mead, uh, we, we look through history, and <laughs> I just had to mention these guys because they have funny names, uh, so, one guy, first suspect, is called Gooberoo. <laughs> Goober. Uh, the second guy, and I'm not making this up, he's called Oogberoo. <laughs> so, we have Gooberoo and Oogberoo, <laughs> and then we have Cambyses, which is, uh, you yeah, know, that's it. But uh, the most popular guy to be Darius to meet is Gooberoo. I just like that name a lot, so I figured I'd mention it. Um, but ignoring what the critics say, Daniel actually has pretty awesome history. Now Nebuchadnezzar he built Babylon. Now Babylon did exist, but he took it to new heights with a lot of building projects uh, when it came to Babylon. Number two, he bragged about his uh, his achievements about building Babylon, both in the Book of Daniel. But then they also found this uh, East India House inscription. <laughs> Basically, a bunch of texts talking about how great he is and how much he built stuff. He was basically Donald Trump of his day. Like, I am going to build the wall. You know, like, I'm the best. I have the best mind. And, uh, like, I did all this thing. Now, Daniel isn't just accurate on what he did, that he built Babylon to greater heights. Like, that's why he was so famous as a king of Babylon. But he's also accurate on what, how he was. He bragged about he like, couldn't stop talking about how great he was. like He was God's blessing to humankind, or whatever. Um, now, Daniel also knew about Belshazzar. Now, remember this, that Daniel knew about Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar building Babylon. but later historian, like Herodotus, writing 100 years later, they did not. They did not know that Nebuchadnezzar built Babylon to the heights that it was. They did not know about Belshazzar. And here's a quote from uh, Dr. Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Robert H. Pfeiffer, he he wrote this in one of his books. We shall presumably never know how our author learned about the new Babylon was the creation of Nebuchadnezzar, like we see in in, uh, chapter 4 and verse 30 in the book of Daniel. As the excavations have proved... And that Belshazzar mentioned only in Babylonian records in Daniel and in Baruch chapter 1 verse 11, which is based on Daniel, was functioning as king when Cyrus took Babylon in 538. Now here's my idea. The reason he knew is because he was there. <laughs> like, that's, that's my theory. Like we shall never know how he was there. Well, the, the, my theory is that he was there. <laughs> There's more good history about in, in Daniel. He talks about the capture of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians happening in one day. Which you're like, that's one of those things, if you know anything about ancient battles, you're like, one day? That seems kind of like, eh, isn't that a bit hyperbolic of you to say? Well, he doesn't go into detail how it happens. He just says, you're going to be conquered in one day. And then he, he turns the page and it's like, well, now I'm serving the Medes and the Persians. And he doesn't go into detail. But if you go check out history about this battle, Cyrus the Great taking over Babylon, um, you read that the Babylonians felt really safe in their city. It was a heavily fortified and defended city. And here's an ancient drawing of, not, not an ancient drawing, it's a, you know artistic drawing of ancient Babylon. And they had these huge walls. They had the Euphrates River running through the middle of the city. It's pretty awesome. Um, well, history tells us that the, the guys, the meats and the persons, They went upstream from the river. It's crazy when you read these battles. Like, how did someone think of this? They took the Euphrates, redirected the river somewhere else, so the water levels went down, and then they walked into the city where the river goes. It's crazy. Like, who thinks about this stuff? It's awesome to read. And and so really, they took it over in one night. They walked in. There was very little defensives. There were very little fighting. There wasn't sieges going on for years. Uh, and they took over, and they, you know, like, like, the, like Daniel says in his writing. Now, um, he's also correct about the law of the Medes and the Persons. Now, in most systems in the ancient world, the king, he could come and he could make a law, and then he realized he made a mistake, and he's going to change the law, and he's going to change it into this. Well, the Medes and the Persons viewed the law differently. The king was under the law. He was not over it. So once a law was placed, he couldn't remove it. And what do we read in Daniel? We read that, well, he was sentenced to the lions then. The king didn't want him to go to the lions. He wanted to save him, but he couldn't save him. He had to wait the night and hope that he lived the night. It's crazy. Um, and here, Here's uh, Syphilis talking about the laws of the Persians. The law cannot be countermanded, and the law cannot contradict themselves. This sentiment prevails throughout Persia. He's writing about how the, the persons viewed the law. You cannot change the law after it's been made, and it cannot go against itself. Daniel is also accurate about other things about the persons, like they were known to keep uh, lions. And what, what happens in Daniel is thrown into the lion's den? They were also known for punishing the wives and children of offenders with, with the offenders. So if you went against the king, then all of a sudden your wife and kid were killed with you. Uh, now, I didn't find a good source for this, but I heard this from a good researcher that I trust. And so, uh, I'm going to trust him. I don't have the source for that one. Now, Daniel is also accurate. Um, no, let's, let's skip that one. Let's go into the linguistic arguments. Anyone, anyone excited about the linguistic arguments? Yeah? <laughs> uh, so, the linguistic arguments are here. Um, now, okay. Maybe I ruined it by showing the slide. Maybe you were focused on Andrew here. Thank you. So they'll attack the languages of Daniel. If you know about the book of Daniel, it's written mainly in Hebrew and Aramaic. But there are also two other languages in there, Greek and Persian. And they will use those languages to attack the book of Daniel being written later and after the fact. Now, anyone want to guess how many Persian words are in the book of Daniel? wild guess. 40,000? No, I'm just kidding. It's 15, 15 Persian words in the entire book of Daniel. And it's like, because of that person, somehow we're going to make it fit to 165 B.C. Um, now here's what the critics will say. That these languages, they prove without a shadow of a doubt that this was written at least after Alexander the Great came to the scene, because we see Greek words in there. And what do we know about Greek? It was Alexander the Great who conquered much of the world, and he's the one who spread Greek through, it, through everywhere. And if there's Greek in the text, it suggests that it was written after Alexander the Great was alive, long after the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius around the 6th century. Because Alexander the Great, he brought Greek language throughout the known world, and Daniel has Greek words in there, it must mean that it was written after his life. So they presume that it was written around 165 BC, after all of the prophetic stuff had happened. And so, like for instance, my wife, she went through one semester to theology department in the university. She brought home books, and I was like, I was geeking out, because I've never actually studied theology, I'm just, I love to read and read. Like, I have education in film. Uh, so if you, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so I, I like to, to read the stuff that she was bringing home. And one of the books, one of the first days of school, they brought her this, why, basically a book making this case. Daniel isn't written when it says it's written. It's written in the second century BC. And uh, there's a lot of bold statements in that book. But what I found interesting is like, there's very little footnotes or reasons for why she got to that conclusion that she came to. You know, and I think it's a very good reason for it because you look at, it like, because there's person in there, and you're like, well, there are three person words in there. That's not a whole lot. Um, and when you look at them, they are uh, they're mostly dealing with, with governments. So they're words mainly dealing with government. And what do we read in the book of Daniel? Daniel was a government employee in Babylon. Right? So it makes sense that he would be using Persian words under the Medes and Persians about the Persian government. Now these words are old enough so that they, when they were translated in 132 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they were translated wrong because the language was too old. They were referring to governmental functions. They were no longer uh, being you know, in use and they were referring to, I think one, one of the words referred to a clothing that no one wore anymore. Now take this with a grain of salt because I'm going to give an argument from silence and like I said, it's a weak argument, but none of the words that we see in the book of Daniel, we, we don't see them anywhere after 300 BC. Like leading up to Christ, between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, we don't see these words anywhere. Uh, and, Like I said, it's an argument from silence. We could dig up something tomorrow and find something. All of the person words that are used are not middle person, which would have been the language if it was written during the second century. It's old person. Like we were saying before, it was translated incorrectly. Like we have old English, we have Norse, you know, old Icelandic, what what, uh, poor Elliot is studying right now. Um, So there's a difference between the languages. Like if you go, you, you would have fairly difficult Time reading your language if you went far enough back, right? And that's what Daniel was using. He was using old person, not middle person in the second century. Now let's tackle the Greek. Um, so anyone want to guess how many Greek words we got in there? Going twice. No. Three. We got three Greek words, but they're in four different places. So uh, if you if studied this, there, there are three Greek words in the entire book of Daniel they are all used in in four different places referring to uh instruments now, if you thought about this the words for instruments they usually travel with them right like when sam plays the sometimes the viola it's not an english word or she plays the piano it's not an english word or when uh, elliot goes on the little drum box called the cajon or something Cajon. Uh, that doesn't sound English. Ukulele. It's not, none of these words are English words. Usually what we have with instruments is their, their name kind of travels with them. Even though they're in a different culture, in a different language, their name travels with them. So we have three Greek words in the book of Daniel, and they're all referring to different instruments. And what's uh, more is that they're all uh, transliterations Meaning, like sushi, right? If I tell you to spell out sushi for me, anyone using the Japanese characters to spell out sushi? No, we're going (laughs) to use armanes. No, we're going to spell it S-U-S-H-I, right? That's a transliteration. We're using our alphabet, our letters, to spell out what we hear. So when these Greek words, these instruments, appear in the book of Daniel, they're not written in Greek letters. They're written in uh, Aramaic, I think it is, describing what the Greek kind of sounds like, what the sound of the instrument sounds like. Um, Now, here are the claims, because because it's Greek, it must be written after Alexander the Great. And these words didn't exist. Here's Some people would say these words, they didn't exist until the second century BC. But you look at these three words. One of them is the Greek word symphonia. Which is our root word for symphony, right? It's a Greek word, but it's not. It doesn't just exist in the second century. There's a guy, uh, Pythagoras, who is writing about it in 530 BC, like exactly when Daniel is alive and writing his stuff. And it also pictured in a Hittite relief in 1500 BC. This word is an old word and re- refers to a specific bagpipe from Greece. That's used, like a Greek bagpipe. Another word in there is kitharos. It's found in Homer's work in the 8th century. So these words did exist way before the 2nd century. They're found in Homer. They're found in, pictured in the Hittite relief and the, uh, Pythagoras in 530 BC. There's one word that we don't see before the 200s. It's uh, sant- pisanterine. <laughs> how, how do you say the P in the Greek? Pisanterine? Uh, we, we find it nowhere through, uh, through history. And, you know, I'm guessing that's maybe an argument from silence that someone can use out there. But here's the thing Babylon, before Daniel was alive, they had Greek slaves, they had Greek mercenaries, they had Greek merchants, they had Greek workers. And archaeology has found Greek pottery from this period. And you look at Greece itself, and all of a sudden, Semitic words are being introduced to the Greek language around this period. So you're seeing cultures kind of starting to talk to each other and work together. And you all of a sudden see that, man, this is, if we got Greek mercenaries and merchants and slaves and workers... How is it such a stretch that they brought their instruments with them? <laughs> I'm, going to, you know, I'm going to Babylon. I'm going to bring my guitar, I guess. You know. Now if we have all these things in Babylon, it's not hard to imagine them bringing their bagpipes along and, and the other instruments. It's actually, to me, the lack of Greek that gives a case for its late dating. Because when you read the book of Daniel, and if it's supposed to be happening in 530 BC, what's the common tongue? It's Aramaic. Like the countries around them, they're, they're speaking in Aramaic. If you move yourself to 165 BC, what's the common tongue then? Greek. All the different countries are speaking Greek. So it's actually the fact that there are only two, there are three uh, Greek words in there is more of like a case for its early dating than, than against it. But now, last linguistic argument is this. It deals with the Aramaic that Daniel writes in the second century Aramaic. This attack it started in uh, uh, well, I forgot all that. arguments. It, it started in the 1800s and it's still used today. Like I said in that book, it's still being used. <laughs> but recent discoveries of fifth-century Aramaic documents proves this yet again wrong. It's like, just proven again to be wrong. It reveals that Daniel is using old Aramaic. And what, what I found really interesting, specifically, he's using imperial uh, Aramaic, or an official or literary dialect. Something that a, you know, a high-empowered government worker would be using. It's crazy. Like It fits, fits perfectly with Daniel. Now, the type of language, it's, a, it's the type of language that a government worker would use. Uh, it seems to fit him perfectly. It was... Ancient enough that four Aramaic words were mistranslated in the Septuagint in the second century, which wouldn't have happened if it was second-century Aramaic. Now you get the gist of it, right? This is like over and over again. This didn't exist, and then all of a sudden something is found, and yeah, okay, it, did, it does exist. This guy never existed; it's made up. But it's the, it's this consistent theme, and and a lot of arguments that are based of silence. Um, there's more stuff we could go into, like the use of Chaldeans in the book, and, but I don't want to go too much into that. Herodotus and Siculus messed that up for them. Now, these last thing is going to be super easy, going over these last points. Number four is written by multiple authors, and I'm like, okay, yes. Let, let's, let's give you that. Like, it's written by multiple authors, so what? It's still written by multiple authors during 530 A.D., like, and, and usually when I hear this argument, there's never given a, like a reason for how they got to that conclusion. Uh, I'm guessing maybe it's because it's written in Hebrew and Aramaic, then maybe you have two different authors or whatever. It's, there's never a good reason for why they think that. But to me, it's like, okay, let's, let's give you that. There are multiple authors. But when did they write this stuff? Since 530 AD, before the prophecy happens. Now, theology of Daniel is too advanced. I just find this kind of, uh, interesting because you're, you're like, no, Daniel, you're not supposed to be this smart about Jesus. Um, it's like, who are you? Who are you to say? They, the critics, they will tell you that there's too much about angels. I think it's the only book where they refer to the angels by name. Uh, we've heard Gabriel now. Um, there's too much about the Messiah, about Jesus. Like in chapter nine, he will tell you to a year when Jesus is supposed to come, and what happens? Well, Jesus comes. He enters the city. On a donkey, and doesn't stop people from calling him Messiah. Um, And number three, he talks too much about uh, judgment and resurrection. So this is the argument that basically he knew too much. He was not supposed to know this much stuff at his time. But you look at these three points; they're all ideas that have been far, you know, before Daniel comes along. They're not foreign ideas to the Bible. Actually, all of these ideas can be found in the first book of the Bible in Genesis alone. So it's, it's not a far stretch. It's, like, it's, it's just a bad argument. Uh, number six, uh, there's an idea that he's in the wrong section of the Bible. Yeah, you're like, well, I'm kind of trying to figure out how, how we can relate to this because we don't really think of the sections of the Bible. Well, here, Okay. New Testament, how is it set up? It's set up for the Gospels, right? That's one section of the Bible. It moves to the writings of Paul, from shortest, uh, longest to shortest. And then, you know, and then you got the apocryphal, not not the apocryphal, the, uh, what's the end time? Pastoral. Uh, Pastoral pastoral epistles. You got the, uh, it's Revelation, not apocryphal, uh, eschatological. Eschatological. That's a funny word. Uh, he, he's, he's in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, they're like, they place them in the writings and not the prophets. But in Daniel, you see a bunch of prophecy. So if he really was a prophet, then he would have been placed in the prophet and not the writings. So it's a later edition. Um, the short answer, the Hebrew categories that they're using when they talk about this stuff, they're made up in the 4th century after Christ. Uh, so they're not made up before Jesus Christ comes. Now, when you look up other people, like we mentioned Flavius Josephus uh, earlier, he talks about Daniel being in the prophets. Uh, Melito of Sardis, let me just put this up here. In the Septuagint, for instance, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 2nd century BC, he's in the prophets. Uh, Melito of Sardis, 70 AD, he's in the prophets. Josephus, 90 AD, he's in the Prophets. And Oregon, at 254 AD, he's a part of the Prophets. Someone is with us? Do you feel it? Uh, It's it's Ayanda. She's with us. (laughs) Um, Now, so it's just a category mistake of like, these categories that you're referring to for your argument, they're made up after the fact. They're they're made up 400 years after Jesus has walked on the earth. And then you get got miscellaneous. Like you have people, like to me, it's, you're trying to prove your presupposition. You want to be right. We're all biased in that regard. And we will cling to stuff that tries to, uh, that, that builds us up in our view of things. And we will ignore evidences that don't. And I'm sure there will continue on being a bunch of objections to this. Now, lastly, I'll say this. The oldest manuscript we have of the book of the Bible comes from the Qumran caves. You remember when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in those caves? Um, Back in, what was it, 1980s? Something like that? They found, it was like a a guy who threw a stone into a cave, and he found like pottery broke. And then he went in there, and it's like all these old writings of the Old Testament. It's like, whoa. The shepherd boy. I wonder if he got a lot of money for that. I really hope he did. Um, He found a bunch of writings. And they're the oldest manuscripts we have. Now, he found, for instance, in there, there was uh, a bunch of Old Testament writings, but there was a scroll dating back to 125 B.C. of the Book of Daniel. Now, this is a conservative estimate. It could be older than 125 B.C. Now, the Greek translation of the Old Testament was finished in 132 B.C. Now, the Greek translation, it didn't happen in Jerusalem, it happened in Egypt. So you're telling me that in 165, someone forged a letter that, that appeared out of nowhere, God accepted a scripture, made it to Egypt to be included in the Septuagint, while a person who was 20 years old, while it was found, this, you know, ancient letter from Daniel, was now 53 when the Septuagint was done translating itself. It's a weak case for me. Uh, First of all, the Jewish people, they, they knew the period between Malachi and Matthew. What is it known to them? The silent period. No prophet came along. No one spoke on behalf of God. Now all of a sudden, you throw the book of Daniel in there, and all of a sudden, this random book appears out of nowhere. Um... It, it just doesn't, it's not feasible. With all of this, my hope for you is that you grow in your confidence in the Bible's accuracy. That you grow in your ability to give a reason, reason to answer when people object, object, object to you. I hate doing these dry kind of lecture type things. Uh, but I hope you get something from it so that you can actually like know why you believe that it was dated later and not after the fact. Because as we dive more and more into the prophecy, it's so detailed and it's going kind to of build you up in the faith. Um, now, most importantly, that you place your faith in the God who inspired this book. That he's, he's not only able to sustain the purity of his holy word, but also that through the message of redemption in this book, he sustains us. Like, there's no attack against you. There's no circumstance There's too tough. Like he has proven himself throughout history to be more than capable handling whatever comes his way. Now, throughout history, this book has been attacked, and here it stands, still proclaiming the good news of a promised Savior who died for your sins and has made a way for undeserving sinners to come to be with God forever. My hope with today is like when we go more and more detailed into this book, that we be encouraged by the work of God through His Word throughout the centuries. So be strong, be bold, don't be arrogant, be confident, not in your ability, but in the God who has proven Himself over and over and over again and is the sustainer of us all. So if you, if you don't know what the Bible, it's one story talking about the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, Daniel chapter 9 talks about specifically what year, right? This is not like this open kind of prophecy that could mean whatever, you know. It's not like a guy with two ears said three words. Like, yeah, okay, that probably happens every day. But this is like very specific and detailed about what's going to happen, what kings are going to come, how they're going to come, how they're going to ruin the earth, you know, ruin this kingdom and take over and so on and so forth. And we can view, look back, past 2500 years and what they knew as prophecy we know as history it's pretty spectacular and if you're an atheist in here and you've ever wondered like okay how would I prove that something is given by God well I suggest that you find something that only God could do like him knowing what's going to happen and so um, let's pray so like, I hope you put your faith in the Savior that this story uh, talks about Jesus Christ, He has made a way. He has died for your sins. And uh, I pray that you put your faith in Him. There's no secret formula. It's just, Jesus, I'm going to follow You with the rest of my life. And Jesus, You are my Savior. And when I stand before the judgment of God, it's not my own ability I point to, but Jesus who...